Just a few film nerds breaking out of a rut Drooling over cinema that's hard and uncut Stick us in your ear, thrill to this month's picks And come and listen in, we're Measuring Flicks Hello everybody and welcome to Measuring Flicks I'm Max Peterson And I'm Bird And it is the month of May, it's May 3rd Cinco de Mayo today. Hey. And two days after our seven year anniversary. Belated, happy belated anniversary, my dearest love. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, I said the real happy anniversary <laughs> to you on the day. It's not like we just sat down on mic and I was like, oh, yeah, wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> it's just funny because this is going to be like heard even later in the past. Not, It's not going to drop. Oh, even further today, after this? probably, right? I might put it up, well, depending on, depending, I might put it up today if you are game to try and get another one in before Saturday. Oh, okay. Um, which would be cool, because uh, then we could we could have the month of maybe a full, a full slate. We're just a, a couple days behind. So, we missed two weeks of, we missed two weeks of podcasting last week, and I posted a, or last month, and I posted a big post you can go over to patreon.com slash quillandfilm, Q-U-I-L-L-A-N-D-F-I-L-M, and read that post explaining why Bird and I did not do, why we took a break for two weeks. Um, and while you're over on patreon.com slash quillandfilm, you can become a patron of the show if you'd like. Uh, you can get shoutouts on the show, full-length bonus episodes, um, all sorts of cool stuff, and you get to interact with our existing patrons, who are often in the comments, uh, in the comments sections. Totally hilarious, and are a great bunch. <laughs> that great bunch is Brian Jackson, Connor Sweeney, Danielle Hartelli, David Rowney, Jeffrey Morgan, Casey Scheibe, Kelly and Mike Wagner, Kevin Ramirez, Sister Sarah Hartley, and William Rockwood, and also. You know who else has been a patron of the show basically forever, but always insists that we never shout him out because he's the co-host? Is Carl Hartley. Carl? Carl Hartley also patronizes the show, mostly so that he can like see all the stuff on Patreon, and it's just something he did a long time ago, and we've always just left it in place. And because he's the co-host, we never thank him, but right now, Carl is quarantined, and Carl is not here able to do the show and he's I'm Carl. You are currently in the Carl in the Carl I'm position. in the Carl seat. Yeah, you're in the Carl seat. <laughs> so right now Carl Carl is one of the show's supporters. So uh, we'd like to thank Carl Hartley. We Carl, I miss you, man. Oh my he god. He misses you a lot. I miss I I well, I mean that's part of the post that's over on Patreon mm-hmm. is how much I miss all of these people because over time I've come to like meet most of them and form personal relationships like really good friendships with a lot of them yeah um which is funny because back in season one and season two when we started getting patrons they were all like Carl's friends and I didn't know any of them right right. but over time like you know through this show I've met so many awesome people and we've had so many good cookouts I mean part of the part of the planning of uh whenever this you know whenever the quarantine ends and, and we can safely hang out with our friends again. Like over on Patreon, we're, we're getting people like, hey, I, when this is all done, why don't we do monthly movie nights? Or like, let's do fire pits. And oh my God, mm, I can't wait for mm-hmm. another cookout. That is one of the things that I'm missing most right now. I don't know about you, but as spring, because like looking outside, there's actually green, you know, there's green on trees and there was sun. Yeah, we've had a couple sunny, warm days. I've cooked on the grill twice. Yeah. One of the things I most miss is like the FZK cookout that we yeah. do, where we have people come over and I'm cooking 
burgers and brats and sausages and vegetables on the grill and we've got Jimi hendrix playing on the on the speakers and everyone just hangs Our out dog is pestering everyone dogs bothering everyone <laughs> me invariably at some point the joint makes its way around and then we're watching cool world in the living room and the chicken wings are too fucking spicy and come on like i miss that so much um so that so we we thanked our we would like to take thank all of our patrons and tell them how much we miss them and if you want to be one of the the new batch of post-covid patrons Head on over to Patreon mm. and you can do all sorts of stuff. Actually, now's a good time to go and check out Patreon because a bunch of stuff that used to be paywalled only for patrons is now free. Uh, if you want to drop us a line, you can send uh, all of your questions and emails. And Actually, uh, Sarah and uh, her her fella, Remy, Jeremy, just recently watched um, Rambo First Blood. And she sent me a text and she's like, I have so many questions. That only that possibly only you and Carl can answer, and I was like, "Send them to me," because mm-hmm. as soon as we can, well, I, I, you know, if you've got questions about a movie, if you're watching movies right now and you want to hear Carl and I talk about it, or hear Bird and I talk about it, drop that email, uh, send an email to measuringflixpodcast at gmail dot com. So, Bird, yes, we are sitting down to talk about a movie that we have been meaning to watch for three weeks, but mm-hmm. you know, go read the post. There's a reason we didn't watch it, but we finally, finally, last night. Yeah, uh, yesterday afternoon, sat down and watched this film. We are talking today about 1980s The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, Scatman Crothers, Barry Nelson, and a whole slew of other people, including uh, Vivian Kubrick in a cameo role as one of the partygoers. We're talking about The Shining today, man. Not the Stephen King written and directed made-for-TV Shining. The oh. horror masterpiece, The Shining. Does that mean we also have to watch the made-for-TV one? It's a six-part miniseries, so technically, oh, so technically no, because no. it's television, right. yeah. Okay. So, Bird, this was your pick. You picked The Shining. I did. You, We bit off a big old chunk of movie, yeah, and I, we are chewing it right now. What? I, I guess I feel like I need to start this with, I don't feel like this podcast is going to do it justice. I feel like to do this film justice, you really have to sit down and watch it like maybe a dozen times and then write an essay. (laughs) So, So, I don't know. What you and I are going to do... The art nerd in me is already like, I'm sorry, I'm going to fail you. (laughs) So So what you and I are going to try and do today is more of a just film, film discussion rather than one of the peterson hartley film school episodes you, yeah i think you really would have to dig into this a lot more okay to so really pull out this might be one that carl and i will revisit um because he is doing his long walk with the king series where he's reading yes. all of stephen king's books and watching all the movies and listening to the audiobooks in chronological order the order they were released is there a in. website to check that out um you know, I actually, I think it's Carl My- CarlMichaelHartley.com. I'll, I'll, I'll reach. You're a bad friend and co-host. Yes. <laughs> you know, sometimes his stuff, sometimes his stuff is up, but a lot of the times I just read the Long Walk with the King stuff when he sends me drafts. Right. So I don't go and look at it on sure. whatever website it's on. But, um, you know, if you go to, if you check out Carl Hartley, or it's Carl Michael Hartley on Facebook. If you go mm-hmm. and check his Facebook out, I'll bet you he's got a link to his website okay. or just... Just hit him up because I've been reading his drafts and his drafts of his long walk with the King series are fucking great. 
So one of the things that we promised to do when Carl started this project, which he's planning on taking like a, two, a decade or two decades to do this because mm-hmm. Stephen King's very prolific and there's yes. been so many adaptations. Oh, yeah. As we hit books that have been adapted into films, we'll do special Measuring Flicks episodes on the book he's reading. Like um, we were about to actually start doing it right before covid hit and shut everything down but carrie we were gonna do carrie mm. and then the next one after that is salem's lot which also got made into an excellent film so we were going so we were we were all geared up and ready to start i mean dude at some point we're gonna get to do the running man with arnold schwarzenegger that's a stephen oh. king novel oh no <laughs> oh shut up that movie's so good but anyway um at some point in the future Ooh. carl and i will revisit the shining as as a special episode because he's gonna read the book at some point mm-hmm. So, you know, just just know that this is not our only bite at The Shining, but this is me and Bird taking our our best swing. It'll be less fil- it'll it'll still be pretty film schooly cuz that's the information that I was mostly interested in, so I did a lot yeah. of research, but uh I I think this is a movie that deserves multiple perspectives as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Right. I mean, there have already been essays and talks given on this film. Actually, so. uh 2008 I'm going to be posting this. I'll probably try and post this with the episode. If you mm-hmm. want to make a note to remind me, um, I'm going to try and post this as like a link that you can go check out. But a there was a guy who in 2008 has he has a whole like web page. It's kind of like more of the old school um, da- uh, internet days of your kind of web page. It looks like it was made on like uh, oh shit, what is that called? Uh, Angel Fire. It's not like an Angel Fire website, but it's pretty bare bones. Hmm. The landing page is just an index of topics, and you click it. Oh, but okay. This guy did a full analysis and uh, dissection of, and like he he like he has a whole sub page of like articles and videos just about the use of mirrors in The Shining. And there's about twenty different categories that he did this on. It it is exhaustive. And so I don't beautiful. need to do this. <laughs> um, it's been done. Right. But, you know, I, I looked through some of his stuff and I would personally disagree with some of his his analyses, but it is very, very well thought out. So I'll, I'll post that a link to that. Cool. Um, some of my some of the stuff I'll talk about is taken from there, but not very much because okay. I kind of wanted to just put it up as its own. If you are crazy about The Shining and want to do like a like <laughs> yeah. a psychotic, uh, if you you know, if you're living the short story, the yellow wallpaper right now. Maybe pop this site open and... I was thinking about that last stop. night, too. <laughs> Were you? Crawl yes, I was. I totally was. I was thinking about the color yellow, and that came to mind. I We are going to talk a lot about color today. <clears throat> All right, so, Boo. Yes. We're, we're going to give people resources to research, but we've also watched the film, and we formed our own opinions. Where do you want to start? Because you're in the Carl Michael Hartley seat. You oh, are the host. My God. No! No, I'm I usually drive anyway, but like... So where do you want... Do you want to start right at the beginning? Kind of yes, work our let's way start through. at the beginning. All right. So... <clears throat> the, and one of the things we're going to have to talk about... We probably don't need to talk about like the plot or any of that because it's such a well-known movie. Yeah. We can we can just dissect scenes and look at stuff. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. People, We'll just assume that people have seen The Shining. I mean, c- come yeah. on. It's The Shining. One of the things I do want to do, though, as we go through... And it's going to be tricky because I haven't read it in a long time this film is 40 years old yeah sorry i just had the math <laughs> on my fingers well last uh, when we were watching it yesterday and you were like this movie was made 10 years before you were born i was like oh yeah wow <laughs> <laughs> and i'm a 30 right now or about to be 30 next month so yeah. um so we get, we have to talk a little bit about the difference between the book in the film because when you read oh, oh my god yeah. when you read through the imdb trivia every other thing is like 
Stephen King had this to say about it. Stanley Kubrick and Stephen King had this conversation. Yeah. The, in the novel, this, but in the movie, this. So that'll come up again and again as we talk. Yeah, some of the things that I was reading online, people were the like quote unquote true King fans were like, I hated this adaptation. Which and is, I was just kind of like, shut up. Yeah. In my mind, they're two totally different things. Me too. King actually doesn't like it either. Um, and I think actually some of his some of his complaints are warranted, but I'm in the same camp as you, which is I think Stanley Kubrick made a masterpiece with this movie, but I also think Stephen King wrote a masterpiece with the book. That was the first Stephen King book I ever read in my life. You gave it to me. We still yeah. have your copy. I was in college. I'd never read Stephen King because I was like, Stephen King, he's a popular author. I'm reading John Milton. And you were like, you got to read this book. And I think I've read like more than half of all the books he's ever read since. I'm an un, I'm an unapologetic Stephen King fan after The Shining. It's a, it's a genius. Mm-hmm. So Stephen King's biggest complaint about the movie, and actually I found this kind of interesting, Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma. <laughs> he had the, he, when this movie first came out, did you know that this movie was critically panned? When it first came out, the oh. critics hated this. A lot of critics did not like this movie at all, and other directors didn't like this movie either. Brian De Palma didn't like this movie because um, he said that uh, Stanley Kubrick... I'm just I'm trying to remember the quote he said like Stanley Kubrick uh, has failed at making a horror film because he he dislikes and doesn't understand people and actually if you look I was thinking about this um, this morning while I was doing a little research while you were still sleeping I was having my coffee and I was just thinking about Kubrick as a director Mm -hmm. there is a sort of clinical coldness to his films does that make Uh, you know like I don't know what are their films of his? Two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, oh, Clockwork Orange, Eyes Wide Shut, Barry Lyndon. Um, he's done. He made a so lot I've of. Seen two of those. He's he's made a lot of movies, but like you can kind of you could look just at The Shining and you can see it. Like for me, this movie is really not about these people. It's about. Oh really? I would disagree. Really? Because yeah. last night you said the opposite. You said, like, Jack Torrance is only bad. Wendy is only crying and scared. Danny yeah, is... They're, um, they're pretty flat people. One of the blogs that I was reading uh, yesterday was criticizing that the uh, the characters don't have an arc. They don't travel. Right, yeah. And I would disagree. I would say that they do, but it's not, like, a big, like, journey of the soul right. type arc. It's very, very subtle. Right. Okay, well, you and I are going to have a much deeper conversation about this movie than I thought we were okay. going to. Okay, so I think that Jack, I think that the to contrast, to, to get what I'm saying about Kubrick or what I think mm-hmm. about Kubrick, contrast this with Ari Aster's Hereditary. You could do this with any other horror movie, but mm-hmm. I think Hereditary is one of the best examples. All of those characters are complicated, fully fully fleshed out human beings who react in a variety of ways to a variety of stimuli. We go on an emotional journey with them. In Kubrick's film, you even complained. You, you Every time Jack is on, on camera, you're like, what an asshole, piece of shit, evil. He's already crazy. By the be- At the beginning of mm-hmm. the movie, he's already kind of out of his head. In he the, is in the book too. No, he's I mean, not. He's kind of a dick in the beginning. No, that was King's biggest complaint was that he believed that Jack Torrance was an, an inherently good man who slowly succumbed to 
evil you definitely and have alcoholism. much more empathy for him in the book right i didn't have any empathy for him in the film and i don't think you're meant to Mm-mm. um i think that when kubrick made this movie he is he was and again like i'm not criticizing the shining mm-hmm. if it's a five star rating i give this movie five full stars oh we should rate it because i oh yeah it is a horror movie and mm-hmm. we have our rating system but i don't i don't think that at all that kubrick was interested in and again like another thing it's not like these flat characters are delivered in a flat way i think these are master i think this is jack nicholson's best performance ever i think this is his masterpiece performance he's amazing in this and mm-hmm. shelly duvall I've never seen, I mean, I've seen only a couple things with her in it, but this is a whole separate class of acting than what she typically is, what we typically see mm-hmm. of her on screen. This is a whole other thing. Yeah. And a lot of that is her, you know, actually being driven almost mad by Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a great bit of trivia on IMDb that she her character is hysterical so much of the time, and she was hysterical off camera so much of the time because Stanley Kubrick instructed all of the cast and crew to not sympathize with her and not try and help her out like because ostracize her because he was yeah. planning basically planning to bully her into turning into the real life character of wendy she cried so much that she was she became so dehydrated from sobbing that she had to constantly drink water to stay hydrated enough to continue crying so like that comes through for sure in the in the movie mm-hmm. i but, almost feel like this is more of a playing with archetypes than like people with journeys i agree with you on that i think that this is i think that this is one of the more cerebral horror films i've ever seen i said that about hereditary as well or something very like it but having rewatched the shining i think i was wrong about hereditary because hereditary is a movie with a lot of heart that cares about the people in it and and the it's an examination of the dissolution of the family structure Mm -hmm. through horror Mm -hmm. this is more an examination of the of the sub processes of horror in a weird way. I think what makes this movie horrifying is all of the stuff that you don't notice unless you're looking for it, which we mm-hmm. did this time around yeah. and we noticed a fuckload of it. What I think this movie's brilliance is is Jack starts out more or less the villain, never becomes in any way sympathetic is only bad. Wendy is a simpering, cowed, codependent crybaby from go and stays that way the whole movie. Danny, nobody grows. But what makes this movie so scary and so horrifying to me is, and brilliant, is I think that what we talked about it all the way through watching the movie, which again, I when, uh, when this started, I thought this movie was like an hour and 20 minutes long. It's two and a half hours long. It's long. It doesn't feel long to me though. This movie feels fairly short. It felt long mm. yesterday because we were taking breaks and I was sure, pausing to, sure. but every time I've ever watched this, it feels too short. I remember the first time I saw this when it was done, I was like, what? That's mm-hmm. it? That's as much as this, you know? Um, I have, I think I have to disagree with you about how Wendy is portrayed. Okay. Um, I think from the very beginning, we see a family who is run by this very abusive father figure. Yeah. So from the very beginning, we're, we're trying to sympathize with two characters who are abused and that's how part of how they act and why they act the way they are. Right. Um, or the way they do. I, I kind of felt like, um. Almost like you were reading through a, a case study or like court documents from an abused 
uh, mother and son, like trying to separate <clears throat> from the father. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of felt like that sort of happening. Okay. And that was like a layer sure. of what's happening in here. Right. The top layer. Yeah. Okay. Um, but You're like, looking at me like you think I'm totally nuts. No, I just think that, but I think that again, it's weird. We're using the same evidence to argue different points because I would say I agree. This reads like the, the personal relationships mm-hmm. read like court documents. Yeah. Dry, flat, facts, boring, no heart. But in a in The Shining, in the movie The mm-hmm. Shining, I think that is the best possible way to approach this subject matter, mm-hmm. which is... Now, I read this beautiful essay on The Shining and and Stanley Kubrick as a cold, meticulous director who he was a misanthrope. He basically hated humanity. He was a nihilist. He was he just didn't like people. He just didn't like them at all. So this movie seems to me to kind of be like an absence of people, but with this rich, this rich, hyper complicated. in, to me, the most frightening part of this is this film's subconscious mind. It's like watching a dream. It is because the, the all the figures, all the people, all the characters are flat like dream people. Mm-hmm. But the dream itself, this is, and again, this is why I think this is so brilliant. The dream, when you're having a nightmare, the figures in the dream are just cardboard cutouts. Right. What makes them scary is the richness of the dream. Right. The people in the hotel are all flat. What makes them scary and interesting is the richness of the hotel. Right. And you know? what you're bringing to your dream. Part. Partly, I don't think we're bringing much to this. I think Stanley Kubrick is subconsciously supplying us with a lot of the terrifying underpinnings. Like, okay, one of the first things you noted. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, I, I was just thinking of uh, The Haunting. Mm. This kind of, the way that it's shot and the set dressing kind of harkens to that in a way. Yeah, The Shining is, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, The the Haunting is, a, is another excellent kind of this is this is a haunted house story in a way and the haunting is also like big in scale like that Mm -hmm. but here let me give you a couple of examples of the stuff that i think genuinely makes this movie scary not because they are these things are inherently scary in themselves but because it builds an atmosphere that you're not consciously aware of Mm -hmm. let's start with the books because that has to do with consciousness so as we were going through um we were looking at the books on any book that's on a shelf in Wendy and Jack's apartment near the beginning of the movie. Or even set in stacks on the table. But well, let's start with the shelves sure. and then move to the stacks. Mm-hmm. because And then you actually noticed an additional layer to this, which I hadn't ever noticed before. I noticed the books like uh, maybe a couple of years ago when I was watching this movie. Mm-hmm. But the top shelf of books in, when, in the background in Wendy's apartment, almost every bookshelf in this movie is three shelves. Mm-hmm. So the top shelf... All of the books are leaning to the right. And then the next two shelves down, all the books are leaning to the left. On that bookshelf, there's not a single book that's upright. And then as we kind of move around the room, we see that there are stacks of books too, like where you lay a book flat and then land, you mm-hmm. know, like how everyone's all readers' nightstands look like. Every stack of book, no, none of those stacks are squared up. They're all leaning. They're all skewed or scanted 
to either the right or the left but or the books are twisted like you know how you use a glass Mm -hmm. to twist napkins Mm -hmm. the books are twisted on top of each other there's not a neat stack anywhere we do see one neat stack of books in a window behind the uh the like child doctor who comes in i wouldn't even say that's a neat stack well i know but that's like tumbling down right but that's why i wanted to bring it up is Mm -hmm. the left hand part of that stack of books is vertical it is neat but the, yeah. on the right hand side of that stack, the books have begun to fall into a pile. One of them is leaning, hanging in open air. Yeah. So that's what I've always, I've always known. For like a couple of years now, I've no, noticed the books in that opening scene. This watch, if you keep watching, there are books in Danny's room in the overlook. All of the top row is, is straight and the under two layers are are skewed in opposite directions Mm -hmm. in jack and wendy's room in the overlook hotel there's a three another three shelf bookcase with the books all screwed up and leaning in different directions Mm -hmm. and i think even in the colorado room in the colorado room the Mm -hmm. books that are in stacks are in screwed up stacks and the ones on shelves are all leaning either left or right and you pointed out or was it one of us pointed out that wendy goes into the room the jack and wendy's room in the overlook and the books are all leaning Mm -hmm. and then she leaves and goes to danny's does she does something and when she comes back to the room they're leaning more like the they yeah they lean more progressively throughout the film right the the like the hard the, lean the scant, of the book yeah. like gets more severe right yes so we talked about how uh, originally you and I talked about how like uh, the top layer is like the conscious mind and that's why yeah in, you have the conscious subconscious and the id right could, there's yeah. three Freudian psychology yeah. breaks the mind into three parts. And there's always three bookshelves. and But there's also three characters. So there's, right. There's a couple different ways you could read it. Yeah. So there's that. But then like you were saying that the top is the conscious mind. So that's the least skewed bookshelf when we first see Jack and Wendy's apartment. Mm-hmm. But there are all, that's also the only bookshelf that has books stacked on top. Of, yeah. the, of the like leaning books. So you're like this is if that's Jack's conscious mind. It's a little bit bent and it's a little bit cluttered, but mm-hmm. it's not as cluttered or bent as his subconscious, subconscious mind or his, or his unconscious yeah. mind, you know, which are, I'm actually blending Freudian and Jungian terms. He, Freud said subconscious, Jung said unconscious, but whatever, you know, you know what I mean. As you go deeper into Jack's inner psyche, his, and you, the other thing you pointed out are these are his books. Yes. So what did you notice about Jack and Wendy's apartment? This is brilliant. So in the, um, the shot where she is speaking with the psychologist, this is where I really noticed when it. When she's like lighting the cigarette and they're talking yeah, about what happened to Yeah, she's sitting in a chair in the living room and you're looking at the kitchen and the dining room behind her. All of the things that are like domestic or things that would be considered quote unquote like Wendy's domain, everything that's hers is very neat and orderly and organized and clean obsessively so the knives on the or the 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 like um the yeah it's like you know you know how you scoops and spoons and stuff scoops and spoons and spatulas hung on the wall they're all like very neat and organized the kitchen table is totally clean there's nothing on it even though um she'd been there with danny it's just moments before i went and looked at a still uh still of that kitchen scene Mm -hmm. to see because i started thinking about it this morning um where all of like the ladles and stuff are hanging down and they're equidistant from each other Uh it's like obsessively neat and perfect and all of the books which is as you were saying like jack's jack stuff because he's a teacher and a writer Right. right right that is all in like total chaos and disarray and it's amazing when you 
Carl and I say all the time for the show, like you watch movies differently when you're watching them to do this. Mm-hmm. And when you see the, when you notice on the conscious part of part of your mind, when you notice the effect of putting all that, all of the clutter of those books and then just crashing it into Wendy's immaculate space. The other really interesting thing about that, that um, apartment. Right, it's moving into her space. Well, what I was going to say is one of the interesting parts about the room is all of Wendy's, the way that Kubrick is shooting the shooting that shot, that one particular shot mm-hmm. when he's cutting back and forth between the doctor. No, Wendy, all of Wendy's stuff is on the right-hand side of the mm-hmm. screen, and all of Jack's stuff is on the left-hand side of the screen, but there's this little estuary, the ironing board, mm-hmm. where her side of the her side of the room, air quotes, mm-hmm. kind of like ventures into under the bookshelf. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of encroaching on his space and then he has a stack of books on her ironing board and he's encroaching in on her space. Mm -hmm. That ironing board is like where they meet as a couple. It's it's crazy. So anyway, all that's one example of something when you're watching The Shining and you're not watching it to sit down on microphones and have a deep intellectual discussion Mm -hmm. with your spouse or your best friend. You know, like when you're just watching The Shining, none of that is on your radar but Kubrick put it in his movie Mm -hmm. in a way too those shelves are kind they're above her you could think of them like pressing down yeah yeah yeah. so like but but here's what here's the point I wanted to you know you know that we've you and I obviously are super familiar with tarot Mm -hmm. so like I've, I've read a bunch of essays on tarot and why people keep coming back to tarot cards and what makes them so powerful and one of the things that keeps coming back is when you're using tarot cards, they're so full of, again, to bring up that word, archetypes mm-hmm. and uh, like the moon, blood, river, uh, Right, mother. like I am doing a project based on that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So like one of the big things about the tarot cards is uh, when I was reading, um, I was actually reading a psychologist's analysis of tarot mm-hmm. and he was saying the reason that humans keep coming back to it is they look at the subject the fool, the magician, the symbols, the tower. Yeah. They, well, they not all the symbols though. What he was saying is, you look at the image and you focus on one thing, but your deeper brain, the part that's not on the surface, mm-hmm. is taking in the whole picture. So even though you're not noticing the moon, the moon archetype is still working in, somewhere in your unconscious mind, and it's creating a deeper resonance that your conscious mind can't explain. And so you imbue the tarot with a in almost otherworldly power because you don't sure. understand why you're so drawn to this image. But it's because that image is so packed with meaningful sim- symbolism or symbology, to borrow a word that I learned in college. I used to make fun of a guy who said symbology until I realized it was a real term and then I felt like a cruel idiot. Dick. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so you, you look at all, you look at an image and you're like, what a cool image. Why is it so, why is this fucking with me? Why the is this three so of powerful? in tarot is like that for me. Yeah. I don't know why that one just like sticks. So my and this is a this is one of this is a Max Peterson hyperbolic grandiose swords. claim. Yeah, the swords are pretty intense. They say three of hearts. You did, but it's it's three swords going through a heart. Yeah. Is the image. I know what you're talking about. But um I knew what you meant. <laughs> the one that always gets me is I think it's the it's like the nine or ten of swords where they're all hanging over the guy who's oh, sitting up laying, in bed. Oh, he's sitting up with his hands yeah. in his in his face in his hands, and there's swords mm-hmm. hanging over him, playing on playing on mythology, Damocles. So, like my my grandiose hyperbolic Max Peterson statement is: The Shining is two and a half hours of sustained symbolism that our conscious minds 
would not ever touch if we weren't staring it's like scrabbling around the edges yeah yeah like that scene with wendy obviously obviously the actors are also doing really phenomenal work mm-hmm. and this is one of the greatest scores i've ever heard i said it, uh yeah. this score is so reminiscent of colin stetson for me or is colin stetson's score so reminiscent of well you know this is 19 <laughs> this is 1980 so yeah it would it would probably uh. be more like that but like the booming brass what a strange choice mm-hmm. for for a horror film it, it has the like you know the the water harp stuff is in there some of the score did you know some of the score is electronic music <laughs> some of this is electronic 1980 yeah, right. Some of this is classical, and the classical bits sound like Colin Stetson. Very stripped back arrangements of like I think the the first. I don't even know how to pronounce it. And if Adam is listening to this, he's going to scream at his phone or whatever device it is. But I think the opening song when they're driving to the Overlook through the like, the, which we'll t- we have to talk about those yeah, shots. Yeah, we do. But when he's you know all that stuff. Um, in their yellow bug. In their yellow bug. Yellow, by the way, we're gonna talk about yellow mm. and red and blue. But um, uh, that song is, I believe, an extremely stripped-back, deep brass adaptation of a classical piece called Dies Are. It looks like Dies Are. Is what it looks like. D i e s are. It's wild. Yeah, but they. Uh, but it's. He's using like bassoons, you know, or whoever's scoring or <laughs> bassoons. bassoons, you know, or like, um, uh, what's that instrument you hate? But a sousaphone. It's just, it's like these super deep, <laughs> like, you know, the, the movie starts with like, I thought you were going to say saxophone because, boom, 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 yeah, it's very boating, foreboding, yeah, but like the something about the absence of strings, you know. That's what's that's what screws with me is you you expect to hear a full orchestra but all you mm-hmm. get is the whoa, whoa. I want to hear Colin Stetson do the Shining score mm-hmm. is what I want to hear man come on um we'll just phone him up and be like I will Yo. I'll be like oh, listen Colin um baby <laughs> I got this great <laughs> idea the other day it was when I was listening to Sorrow your interpretation of Gorecki's Second Symphony um yeah you got to do the Shining score bro um yeah so. So there's just the books. So what I what I think, and we can go, we can talk about even. This is the one of the best parts is we can talk about more shit. More shit. There's more shit. You want to talk about the? I I found this online. Um, it's something that I I realized after reading the essay. I, it's something that had always bothered me, mm-hmm. but I had never noticed it until someone pointed it out. And that's again like that shining thing. It's called somebody noticed it and it has been it has a name now it's been dubbed the uh the shinings impossible corridors other people call it impossible geometry someone uh actually the video, this is so fascinating the video game developer for duke nukem i think it was duke it's either duke nukem or doom wanted to make a map in the game that mirrored the Overlook Hotel as mm-hmm. a nod to The Shining. But when they rewatched the movies and tried to like make a floor plan, they realized that it, that the the hotel as shown on screen mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um Danny Well, you're coming right back to the labyrinth that keeps coming up again and again and again. Also a reference to the mind. The the labyrinth? Yeah. yeah. Um 
let's really really quick let's you want to talk about another fun subconscious thing that i'm sure your brain is yeah you go ahead and say it you should oh my god i wish i could take credit for this but i can't mm. um i never I knew saw, this you, you told me this a- ages ago i saw somebody had looked very closely at the green like Im- knit or like embroidered tie that Jack wears to his interview. With it's almond. like a very weird. Yeah. yeah. It's a very weird tie and it's like nubbly. Yeah. Somebody zoomed in on it. It's a labyrinth. It's not just any labyrinth. It's I went, the labyrinth. It is the hedge maze. Yeah. I went and looked at it. Yeah. It's, it's the hedge maze that's outside the Overlook Hotel is Jack's tie. Again, that is that attention to detail that I'm talking about where the first time... Kubrick looked at every single thing and what, obsessively. And what's really, except, and again, and we can come back to this, but except the people, which I think is amazing. I, I know we kind of, we yeah. disagree on that, but that's okay. Um, I Think about that. This is made in 1980. This is really before like the big boom of, of home video. I think we're not too far away from this. Like we're getting like VHS tapes and stuff or Betamax, but 1980 is, this is still like in a time period where we're not, it's not right, easy. Star to Wars s- is mid seventies, and that wasn't video yet. That was yeah, no video yet. So like rewatching this, you'd have to go back to the theater, right. or like maybe you could get it on Betamax, but I don't think so. Not at yeah. this point. Which means that Stanley Kubrick put in Jack's tie, a oh tiny detail for you sh- would see it like huge though. His tie. The yeah, this whole movie would be huge. giant. Yeah, it's yeah, w- not like small shun. like in your house. Right. Um. There's and you know, there's two for the aspect ratio nerds. There's two versions of this. It was shot in 1.37 to one, which is super panoramic widescreen, and it was released in 1.85, which I think is most versions that people see as 1.85. I think mm-hmm. the version you and I watched is the 1.37, and that's why the helicopter shows up in the opening uh. driving sequence. That is, by the way, a confirmed mistake. Although a lot of people use it as evidence um, for one of the three conspiracy theories that are tied to this film, which we'll maybe touch on lightly, but are kind of not that interesting because the evidence is pretty scant. <laughs> um, but think about that. Kubrick had to go to a costume designer and say, make Jack, I need to, and this tie is only on screen for like a minute of the movie. Yeah. Of a two and a half hour movie. I need you to make Jack's tie the maze. He puts that on screen, and I guarantee you one person in... 500 million people noticed it but everybody saw it it's that uh, no, yeah you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. it's that subconscious mind thing like the books in the background you're not looking at them when you first watch this movie it's that weird tickle on the back of your neck but they're yeah. there and that's what makes this movie so eerie mm-hmm. so the impossible geometry when danny is going down yeah. he goes through the colorado room mm-hmm. the big room the room yeah. where her, his dad writes right does he uh, it's either that or the gold Is room. Is it the rugs? One? Yeah, yeah. He, the sound design of that is amazing. But he he rolls through. Yeah, so he rolls through that big central room and then he turns left down a hallway. Okay. And somebody noticed that room is like massive, right? Yeah. So put that room in your head. Massive. Okay. Danny goes out and turns down a hallway and there's a series of doors on the left that are all like room doors uh-huh. but they would lead into the colorado room and we've seen the interior of the colorado room and there Shit, are no watch this movie again <laughs> well actually <laughs> do you remember the information uh, that i the, the, that guy who did the, like the super deep dive 
and, yes. and I'm going to post a link to it. Yeah. This is the guy who figured that out. And he made mm-hmm. two 10 minute YouTube videos, including Clips showing. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. he also includes floor plans of oh the Overlook God. Hotel made from watching. I think I'm in love with him. Oh my God, dude. He, <laughs> he watched the movie, wasn't satisfied with the amount of information he was able to glean from it. So he managed to track down the original um, uh, set design floor plans from the, from no. the movie. And he, How? Uh, I think he just got in touch with people and was like, look, I'm trying to do this thing. And it's it's now called The oh Impossible God. Geometry of the Shining. Um, there's a room. This is so fucking amazing. There's a room that we see. And mm-hmm. when you uh, like if you look at the floor plan, they point out like these doors lead to nowhere because on the other side is either the Colorado room or the exterior of the hotel. So what are these doors? There's another there's a, a hallway that leads into a room and it dead ends, but then it leads into another room, and that that room is in an interior space of the sh- of the Overlook Hotel. It doesn't touch an outer wall, mm-hmm. but there's a window with light coming through it. It's called the Impossible Window of the Shining. Could this just be a an issue because they built all of the sets? No, a lot of film critics have looked at this and said that Kubrick did this on purpose, specifically to do exactly what you and I are talking mm-hmm. about, which is make people. No, this is even better. Talk about the haunting. In the mm-hmm. haunting, they talk about how that in that house, there's not a single angle. That's, that's what true. I was referring to earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 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 the haunting, there's this famous in the book. They make it very explicit, but they say that people who go into the house get really anxious and nervous after about 15 minutes, and no one has made it more than like a, a couple of days because they go insane mm-hmm. because there's no there's not one angle in the whole house that's 45 degrees. Everything is slightly askance. Yeah, there's no. There's no 90 90 yeah 45 well there might be some 45s but I'm there's, sure there are quite a few but there's no 90 degree angles in the whole house nothing is square mm-hmm. and that like that's why doors will swing open and that's why cabinets will open and close themselves and stuff is because nothing is nothing in the house is it's true. true yeah it's all made to and it fucks with your head on a subconscious level because right. the, the characters say that they can't tell that anything's wrong but they do start to feel like, like everything's wrong. Slightly off of ninety. Yeah, and and uh, a bunch of film critics, because unfortunately, sadly, Kubrick's dead. He he didn't often like to go into like really deep, heavy analysis of his own stuff. He liked to let it sit and let let people grapple with it. But most film critics think that he did it on purpose for the reason that is given in the the haunting, which mm-hmm. is something is really wrong with this hotel. Like. You see that hallway and some part of your brain that's following along knows that that window shouldn't have shouldn't be there mm-hmm. and that those doors <clears throat> don't go anywhere. But your top surface of your brain is just watching Danny. But the undersurface of your brain is going like, this is really wrong. These hallways are really wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, but so there that the impossible geometry of The Shining is another thing like the books that like starts to screw with you as you watch the movie the hotel itself is it doesn't seem to fit together right mm-hmm. another supporting piece of evidence for this is kubrick and his design sent out his design team the sh- the overlook hotel was intentionally made with an ununified design theme there is no theme to the overlook he took each room in the entire hotel he took mm-hmm. each room from different hotels around the entire world with different design schemes he hodgepodged together a, a hotel. Are, that, are, you, are you talking about interior design or are you yes. talking about 
architecture or are you talking about both? I'm talking about both. Okay. Different clashing carpet pattern. There's the famous carpet, but oh there's also God. a bunch of rugs and different carpets. The color scheme's not unified. Mm -hmm. The hallway will be one color and then the room will be a garish clashing color. I thought you would find this interesting. The, the bathroom where Grady and Jack go and talk to each other. Mm -hmm. When he's wiping that off, yeah. that is based. That is taken from the Biltmore Hotel in Arizona, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. That bathroom, hmm. that is a Frank Lloyd Wright bathroom recreated by Kubrick for the Overlook, and that's why that bathroom clashes so hard with the Gold Room that they had just exited, which is yeah. like 1920s opulence. And then they walk into a Frank Lloyd Wright low angular Except bathroom. That they were saying that they had just redone it, right? And that's so it wasn't wasn't original 1920s it was like a hearkening back in 1970 but or and again if you guys you guys can do the the go crazy reading essays thing but people point out that this is also that the gold room is a room that everybody sees but the bathroom only jack sees so the bathroom they walk into, oh, they've just, we've just done renovations to blah, blah, blah. Like, mm -hmm. oh, you can see it's returned to its former glory. They wouldn't have done the bathroom that way. So this is not how the bathroom really looks. This might not even be a real place. Why would they be in the bathroom cleaning off a drink? Because no drink was spilled on Jack in reality. Right. So this might be in Jack's head, which leads to another thing that's pointed out. Um, I, I started to notice it this time, mostly because you and I were talking about how some of the mirrors on the walls are cheated out a little. Yeah, they don't seem to reflect what they should reflect. No, they they reflect weird angles that aren't right. And yeah. that's another that's another splinter in your brain. And then when you're looking at Jack in bed in their apart in their like uh, their quarters in the overlook, mm -hmm. the painting over the bed is straight, but in the mirror, the painting over the bed is crooked. Mm -hmm. Little shit like that mm -hmm. will fuck with you over two yeah. and a half hours. But this is something that I started noticing. Uh, when Jack goes into the gold room for the first time and orders a drink. Mm -hmm. And I picked up on it as it went through. And then I went and, and fact-checked. Um, every single time in, that whole, in the whole movie, every time that Jack talks to a ghost, there is a mirror in the shot. Oh. The bartender. When we're seeing a ghost, he's mm -hmm. got the mirror behind him. When he's talking to Grady, they're in a bathroom. There's a mirror behind Grady. There's the only time that you don't have a mirror, you don't see the ghost. And it's when he's talking to Grady through the door, the shiny metal door. There's no mirror there, but there's no ghost on screen. Yeah, you don't see them. Yeah. That's enough. I think, again, like, here's more. This is another splinter in your brain that you don't see when you watch this movie. And that's why I think when The Shining is done and you've seen I still remember seeing this for the first time. The first time you see The Shining, and you're done you're you get you have like a chill in you and you're like i don't know why there's only two there's only one on-screen murder in the whole movie there's only one murder it's when halloran dies right. no one else is killed jack freezes to death on accident and dick halloran is murdered and his death is fairly over it's over fairly quickly by the way danny the doll that danny drops in the lobby dick halloran dies in the exact spot where that doll was dropped doll it's like really early in the movie he's playing uh it's he's like running around playing with toys and there's a toy left right there i didn't see it it was one of the trivia bits but hmm. it's i was looking at like the i was reading an article about the meticulousness of 
Kubrick as a director yeah. and I just jumped to the shining bit and that was one of the things they said hmm. but that room the room where Dick Halloran dies is another room that comes up in the impossible geometry because there's no way for Jack to have gotten where from where he was to behind that pillar without Dick seeing him unless there this other hallway that someone noticed like connects around the back mm-hmm. for no reason it's very strange hmm. um but yeah so like the the mirrors and you you early on started noticing color oh yeah so it's apparently not every single one but the color red is present in almost every single frame of this movie yeah Um, even in like teeny tiny little ways yeah there's those like weird bird things in the apartment I think Dick Dick Holleran wears a shirt at one point that's like mostly blue, but there's Has one little tiny red like boxes on it. Or just something. one though, which was weird. It's sitting on like his left, like the left breast of his shirt. There's like oh, which is where he gets the axe. No, <laughs> we're gonna have to watch this again. <laughs> we're gonna have to watch this again. But Dick Holleran's wearing a shirt at one point that's entirely blue, except for one panel of red right over his heart. We're gonna have to look. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> But see, like, these are, like, the little things that your your deep mind is picking up. And your deep mind is telling you that something's really wrong. Mm-hmm. But you don't know what it is because, again, you're not – I don't think you're picking up on it on a conscious level, which I think is just genius. It's just total, total glory. Um, so. 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 Sorry. I, I had to get all that out of my system because it was insane. Like the the number of tightly controlled things. Oh, by the way, for people who are curious, there is a movie that has red in every single second of every single frame in the entire movie. It's called The Limits of Control by Jim Jarmish. Someone also pointed out that Colorado is another Spanish word for red. What? Yeah. <laughs> so... We jumped all around talking about all of this stuff. Can we talk? Can we go back and talk about the opening shots when they're when they're heading oh, yeah, to yeah, the yeah, overlook? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what do you? Yeah, what are your thoughts about that? I wanted to know where it was shot. Uh, was this shot in Colorado, or was it? It seemed very Canada. It was. It was shot in a yeah. I think Yellowstone. It was shot in a national park. Oh. Um, he sent people to the Rockies uh-huh. to see if it was going to be good. They came back and said, it didn't really look that interesting. And then Kubrick watched the footage they had shot and mm-hmm. fired the entire department. Every <laughs> single person on that unit, he was like, you're all fired. What are you? Are you out of your uh... fucking minds? Um, oh, the way they got these shots. I think this is amazing. The camera was mounted on the front of the helicopter. Mm-hmm. The cameraman worked with the mechanics to balance the rotors so that there was no vibrations at mm. all. That's why those shots are so, so clean. Smooth. Yeah. yeah. And they, there's no bounce like it's on a rig or a gyroscope. Mm-hmm. He balanced the rotors so that the, there was no vibration in the, the actual helicopter itself. Amazing. So the, the camera is like, that is like the glassiest camera it's, work I've ever yeah. seen. It's very slick. Yeah. he's the That was the, I believe, second DP. Who worked on that one? And mm-hmm. he specializes in helicopter photography, hmm. in aerial photography. Um, you definitely get a sense of like um, watching a mouse in a maze or like looking at a maze from the top. Yeah. You kind of get that sense even in those very opening shots. That first shot of the um, the island, it's it amazing. just it doesn't seem to make any sense. 
You're like, why are you showing us this? Do you want my theory? Isolation? Yeah. The the first thing we see. By the way, mm-hmm. the book starts well before this. Oh, yeah. So I think it's an interesting choice on Kubrick's part. And I think for the film, a good choice. He starts us in medias race. Mm-hmm. We're heading. Jack is about mm-hmm. to get the job. Mm-hmm. We're going to get the family in. I think the family's in the hotel within like 20 minutes, you know. Um, the island the the first thing we see is this island and the island is isolated right and it's small it's not like a it's not grand island or drummond island it's just it's this like tiny little spit of land in the middle of a lake i don't know i was grabbing for like the the islands i could think of you know <laughs> islands i have personal <laughs> personal experience with um no, I uh, so the island the island is isolated. It's very small. I like his choice to do this because it's surrounded by water. It's cut off from everything around it. But what's around it? These towering vast Huge, mountains. Oppressive. Yeah. yeah. So so like the first the first feeling in a weird way like I think Kubrick doesn't understand not doesn't understand. Maybe doesn't understand. I think I think Kubrick is less interested in people and their emotions and mm-hmm. more interested in. He he reminds me of Lovecraft in an in a way. Lovecraft didn't like people Forces very much. Forces of either. nature. Sure. I think Kubrick thought in archetypes or thought elementally because mm-hmm. it's like looking at a uh, like a Rorschach ink blot. Here's a tiny island in a cold vast lake surrounded by massive towering structures of nature that we there's a word for this i can't remember what it is it's one of those words like sonder which is realizing the minuscule how minuscule you are tiny tiny ant sized you are yeah when you're standing at the base of a mountain it's it's awe is -hmm. what it is and that word has kind of like been diluted to meaninglessness but it is truly awe it's like this mountain is so much more than I could ever possibly be. Mm-hmm. And then when you underscore it with that, mm-hmm. you, you feel like suffocated and you're in wide open spaces. So that's that first shot, which I, I love. Um, it really speaks to that primal part of you that understood uh, that you were at nature's um mercy right basically if you survived to 30 you know back in caveman days or prehistoric days you know it was more a matter of luck than (laughs) anything we we've lost touch with that because we have so much technology and we have cities and i i think we've sort of like grown out of that Mm -hmm. but if you get back into nature places that are very rural and untouched Mm -hmm. um I'm sorry. I just I'm I'm getting your levels. Thanks. You're welcome. I'm sorry. I'm just I don't want to jack up your gain too much because then your voice gets distorted slightly. Um un, <laughs> untouched, unspoiled. At the at the the head of cuz the first the first car is not the family going to the overlook. It's just Jack. Right. When Jack gets to the Overlook Hotel, that first shot. This is by the way, this is the only this is the only shot in the movie that is a real hotel. The exteriors? The front exterior. The rear of the hotel was built on a soundstage. But that, 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 <laughs> they come back to it four times or five times. It's when they usually they're like Wednesday 
and then they show you the same shot of a hotel but it's either more snowy or less snowy or it's mm-hmm. dark or light or whatever but it's that it's that shot with the peak in the background and the hotel itself is kind of like sitting in the midground and then there's mm-hmm. like trees below it yes yeah. that is actually a hotel but all the rest of it including the rear exterior shots like when Danny goes out the window and slides right. down the, yeah. that's all constructed oh yeah you can tell that snow's not real snow it's uh, crushed styrofoam and salt. Gross. That's that's how they did the salt for the maze too. This is interesting. You know how Jack Nicholson is pouring sweat when he's chasing Danny through the maze. How he's got like that slimy sweat on his forehead and he looks mm. feverish and mm-hmm. he's glistening. That's because that set was like a hundred and ten degrees. <gasps> so at the end of every take, all the actors that were on screen, like in the snow, would strip to like their underwear because yeah. it was so swelteringly hot in that on that set. That's why he's sweating so much. But it looks right. cool because it looks like he's like it looks like he's just lost his feverish and mind. crazy. Yeah. But it's Jack Nicholson like trying to pretend he's cold and like buttoning up his sweater, like holding it closed. Yeah, and it's like oh and he's God. got like you know he's like sh- he's like trying to stay huddled, and it's a hundred degrees. <laughs> Which we I have some fun uh, fun behind the scenes stuff for that a little later on too, but I want to stick with our topic for now. But when we first when Jack first first gets to the Overlook, I noticed it this time again because I was looking. The mountain and the Overlook Hotel are almost identical colors. That first kind of like gray brown. Yeah, it's like that. It's color. Like, yeah, like yeah. The, that gray brown fall color. You know, like it's it's creep it's not an accident the the overlook and the mountain like blend into one thing natural element Mm -hmm. a natural element and it also it in a weird way it makes the hotel seem at like bigger it makes it just a peak on this mountain yeah like when you when you go into the overlook it's like you're going into the mountain and you're crushed by the mountain it's it's a beautiful shot, and it's this time. As soon as I saw it, I was like, "Oh, that's that's why this is scary. That's why this is chilling." Um, I loved that. Uh, so for you know, he gets the job. We cut back to Wendy's apartment, and two things happen. Jack and Wendy's apartment. Yeah, well, Jack's not there. Thank God. Jack and Wendy's the Torrance place. Um, the old Torrance place. Well, there's two things that happen, kind of intercut back and forth, which I, which I think is really cool. Ullman tells Jack about Grady murdering his family with an axe, mm-hmm. and Danny has a vision of the of the elevators, and those two things kind of happen, intercut into each other. Does and he also see the girls at that point? The dead girls. I don't think bodies? he he no. doesn't see the he sees Just the, the elevator. He might. I think he sees the girls. But not dead yet. Mm-hmm. He just sees the twins, like in that weird yeah. white light. Because later on, when they say "come play with us," that's when we start cutting to them being dead. <gasps> um, but the two things that I love about this intercut is Danny's hyper-expressive face when Tony shows him the the like the bloody elevator. Mm-hmm. Why don't you wanna? Mm-hmm. Why don't you wanna go to the hotel, Tony? Tony, what's wrong with the hotel, Tony? And, and then, Tony won't tell him, and then Tony shows him, yeah. And Danny's got this, like, horrified face, right? Mm-hmm. His face is so expressive. Contrast that with Jack Nicholson's face when Ullman is telling... Uh, Jack Torrance's face when Ullman is telling him about Grady's axe murder. Jack is... His face is flat. Flat as glass, totally unexpressive. He seems, like, bored slash, like, are you pulling my leg? 
he was Jack Nicholson was very hard for me to read this whole movie. I couldn't tell like times if he was lying or if he was acting differently than he actually was feeling. He was just very hard for me to get a bead on. He has an incredibly expressive <clears throat> face. His eyebrows in particular. But like he, not since Robin Williams, who was considered for the role for Jack Torrance. Um, actually, this is this is actually my one of my favorite bits of trivia. Um, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams were both considered for Jack Torrance, even though Jack Nicholson was Kubrick's first choice. <laughs> Kubrick watched Taxi Driver, the Robert De Niro movie, and decided that De Niro was not psychotic enough to play Jack Torrance. And then he watched Mork and Mindy and decided that Robin Williams was too psychotic to play Jack Torrance. I just, I absolutely adore that. Um, But yeah, like watching Jack Nicholson's face, whether his eyes are open, he can have this like impish grin that if he just lowers his eyebrows a little bit becomes the most sinister wolf smile you've ever seen. He can look, he can look fully mad, fully insane, and then in the blink of an eye, go to just an irate... Man, he, I, I can't believe the things that this man can do with the his smile lines. Mm-hmm. He can use the lines in his face in combination with like the angle of his eyebrow to run you through a handful of emotions in the span of a second mm-hmm. and then settle on the one that you least expected. It's it's truly a masterful performance, and it's it's stunning. And watching him use it to torment Wendy, mm-hmm. use use his expressive face. It's I I don't mean that he's not expressive. What I mean is this must be how interacting with a sociopath is. You know, they are acting a certain way that either they expect you to react to. Yeah. Or they're putting something on for your benefit. Mm. Or you're seeing the real them, but you're not sure every time Which like what you're going to get. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about him. Or, or almost like he's like a wild animal that's been sort of domesticated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're not sure what animal you're going to get that some, day. Some of the most incredible mo- uh, Nicholson moments in this are there's a, there's a couple of be- amazing shots. Where there's no one else in the room and he's just frozen staring. The my favorite one is when he's in the Colorado room looking out the window with his mouth slightly ajar. You know the one because the shot I'm talking about. He's got like a four day beard growing. You like that one better than the bedroom? No, I like. But I, oh. that's what I'm saying. I like them all. You know that there's these there's these moments where Jack Nicholson is just he's so far gone away that it's like you're looking at a dummy. By the way, there is a dummy in this movie. Uh, when Shelley Duvall picks Danny up off the floor uh, because she says, you did this to him, you choked him, you bastard, mm-hmm. and she runs out mm-hmm. carrying him. She's carrying a dummy because Kubrick couldn't figure out a way to shoot that scene that wouldn't let Danny Lloyd, the actor, know that this wasn't a family drama but a horror. Mm-hmm. So when she when mm-hmm. she picks up the kid and calls like calls Jack a bastard and you can't believe you and did this. limp. And he's limp. It's because it's a dummy because yeah. they didn't want to. He didn't want to scar this kid, which amazing. Did you know Kubrick wrote, uh, called him on his high school graduation, and to congratulate him on graduating high school, Danny Lloyd grew up to be a biology professor at a school. Yeah, cute. 
<laughs> um, and Kubrick apparently sent him and his family Christmas cards like every year for about a decade after this movie came out. Kept in touch like with the young that. actor Danny. Aww. He used to play games with him on set and stuff. Kept him shielded away from the Shelley Duvall weirdness. Oh, that whole thing? Hmm. Yeah, like... It's weird. Kubrick is a very manipulative guy, but at the, at the same time, you're like, Ugh. it's like the stories you hear of John Wayne, where you know that John Wayne is like a real bastard as a as a person, but during the shooting, Carl and I, I don't know it. anything about him. I know him. you don't. He's like, he was a, he was a bit of a bastard, but like on, shocking. I know, right? Just like, it's like Charlton Heston when you figure out that Charlton, because Charlton Heston, but then again, like this is, it's a cool way to remember that people are like whole people. Um, I missed it. We want to write it down. Mm. Um, but it's like John, like John Wayne during the Searchers. There was like a, a minor cast member whose mother was sick or something, and John Wayne was like flying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's another one, but like, so you hear all these stories, but but they but they do nice things. You can have weird beliefs and be a, and you can have some shitty ideas and still be a good person. That's, but I don't, but that's that whole thing that Kubrick misses, which is what a whole person is, you know? Like, think about Hereditary, the mom. The mom is pretty shitty. Like, most. She reminds me of Shelley Duvall, actually. The mom? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit, actually. But, like, she's pretty shitty, but at the same time, she's also extremely sympathetic. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and that's how I feel about Charlton Heston, Clint Eastwood, and John Wayne. They did good things and had bad ideas. Um,. So let's see. I already got that note. I already got that. Oh, we, dude, we have to talk about the elevator blood job. Oh my God. Go. Uh, Tell me. I love this. I love this effect so much. Mm. I just want to hug all of the people who brought this to us. So this, the, the elevators opening and the blood pouring out. It's just, it's such a, visually stunning it's arresting it took over a year to get that shot it took the shot itself not counting cleanup just to set it up just to get the shot set so that someone could call action and try and film it just that process of setting up every shot took nine days then you did it and then you had to clean everything up i believe it and then after everything was totally clean and back in order, it took nine more days to set back up. That's why you can see some different angles. I believe it was shot from three angles sure. each time. That shot, especially when we get into the crazy number of shots that Kubrick used in this, he's famous for like, he literally made Scatman Crothers cry on this movie by making oh. him, who was 70 years old. The scene where Jack kills him with the axe, uh-huh. shot that 40 times. Oh my god! And Jack Nicholson finally went to Kubrick and was like, "Hey man, look, Scatman Crothers is seventy. Can we can we stop at forty? Can we be done at forty? You must have gotten something you mm-hmm. could use. By the way, the axe that that Jack hits him with, the one he breaks down the door with, real axe. The one that he hits Crothers with is a fake axe. Mm-hmm. And Jack Nicholson filmed himself swinging a real axe and worked on swinging a fake axe so that it looked like it had weight. Oh, so it was heavy. Talk yeah. about performance, dude. Yeah." It's like a foam-headed axe, but he figured out how it would look. I love that to swing a heavy axe. So I feel like Jack Nicholson gets a lot of shit. I think he for does being like big and wild and weird. Right? Yeah. But, but he's amazing. Oh my god. He's a he's a he's a towering giant of acting. He's amazing. This movie in particular, I was just sitting there the whole time, being like, 
That is why we still talk about Jack Nicholson. Like, look at what he's doing. He's the only good thing in Easy Rider. Like, Easy Rider is like, eh, it's boring and it's problematic. And then Jack Nicholson shows up for like 15 minutes. And you're like, this is incredible. <laughs> I just thought of him in The Terror. The, uh, the Terror is the, uh, the only, it was the last <laughs> horror movie that he shot before he shot The Shining. Was the terror. Oh my god. But like there's a scene in Easy Rider where he gets stoned and talks about his theories about aliens. And you're like Jack Nicholson Mm. is killing it. And then Jack Nicholson gets killed. And the rest of the movie is like back to just being like blah. He's amazing. So that. um, So Kubrick only shot the elevator sequence three times. Because it took so long to set up and clean. His big complaint was that the blood didn't look like blood. Until that third take. And then they nailed it. In the UK, you can't show blood in movie trailers, so he told them it was rusty water from a burst pipe, and they let it run. What? I know, right? <laughs> what? Oh, my God. That elevator blood shot has got to be I one of the- I think that held the record for the most on-screen blood for quite a while. Dead Alive has more. Yeah. Hasn't um, De- Cabin in the Woods now no, taken the- No, uh, Evil Dead, the remake. So- Right. Dead Alive, the last sequence in Dead right. Alive with, yeah, the Dead Alive sequence was the most blood used in a single single scene or single mm-hmm. shot or something like that. It's either single scene or single shot, but it's the most blood used for like one purpose in a movie until the Evil Dead remake in 2013 when the filmmakers literally made it rain blood from the sky. If you haven't seen the Evil Dead remake and you oh like horror God. movies at all, you know what? I think I know what my next pick is going to be. Because <laughs> that movie is just a uh, banger, man. Um, you know, hey, if I can find it, I will. If I can find it, I'll post as a Patreon extra our commentary to the 2013 Evil Dead, which we did one time. Remember, oh, we laid in okay. bed and ate snacks and just screamed into <laughs> microphones for like two hours as that amazing movie uh, happened. Mm. But yeah, that that one of the, my favorite things about the elevator bloodshot, and you can apply it to the it whole movie. It looks delicious. Delicious. Yeah, I don't know. It looks like. Sticky jam or something. I just want to Sticky taste jam. it. I thought it looked a little like a little fluid, like a little bit. Yeah, like um, fruit punch or something. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. I want to know what it tastes like. What? <laughs> We've talked about it on the show before, but like my favorite on on set story about uh, extras eating f- props. Poop. Yeah. Uh, Human centipede 2. The poop was oh a mixture of peanut butter, Nutella, oats. And like macadamia nuts and that sounds amazing. Yeah, so like the poop, I want it on crackers, right? The they it was it, dude. On screen, it looks like like, and they had Awful. to make it runny so they could shoot it out of air cannons because the last person in line paints the wall. It's fucking hilarious when you know the story, but like on screen, it looks like runny diarrhea. And the a famous story from the from that set or from that that set is that they had to they had to put people they had to first get people to guard it. And then they had to lock it up in between takes because the cast and crew were all eating the shit, eating the shit prop because it was so delicious. They couldn't stop people eating it. <laughs> you have the most fun on a horror film. If you don't agree with me, fight me. You do. You do. Bird has some experience on this. Like we shot a horror movie and that was probably the most fun we've ever had. Like, come on. Like people just eat. Well, that was the most fun I ever had. Mm. You were pretty miserable for some of it, but... um. So one of the things I love about that elevator shot that I think makes it so effective, and this is something that goes all the way through the movie, is he doesn't ha- he doesn't let us hear it. There's no sound. Mm, it's yeah. just the score. You know, you see the elevator open and all this liquid sloshes out. This is 
It makes it more impactful. Maybe a good way to think about the books and the mirror and the the corridors and the geometry and all, all these things we've been talking about that are running under the surface is it creates a sense of cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. because you're expecting to hear. We all know what like a rush of liquid, a big rushing river sounds like or a big flood of and your your brain gears up and you're like, here comes the splash. And instead you get like. And it's not what you were ready for mm-hmm. And you're too busy looking at the blood To realize what it is But it, you're right It makes it so much more impactful To pull the Like in another moment Where exactly this happens Is Danny screaming I love that we don't hear him scream Yeah he opens his mouth to a- scream and Ever? Uh, there are at least two Red rum. shots oh, well, Red rum! Red rum! Well, yeah, Red rum! He says that 47 times in that scene because he gets he just starts going red rum, red rum, red rum. And he stands up and Mm -hmm. while we're doing numerology stuff, because we have I have so many notes on this that I'm sure I'm going to forget something. So I'm just anytime I think of a note, I'm going to say it so that we can get through it. But um, speaking of like the numerals. Breaks down to two. There's only two of them that survive at the end. Well, what I was thinking was. so one of the you know one of the theories is that uh, uh, one of the conspiracy theories surrounding this movie is that Kubrick faked the moon landing, and you can see Apollo Eleven all through the movie. So like he's wearing an the Apollo shirt Eleven is, shirt at yeah. one point, and the pattern on the floor is the exact shape of the lunar module. And Danny has a in Danny's bedroom. There's like a a model spaceship there's there's a bunch of little things that people are like look it's him saying that he faked the moon landing but really it's not but it's because it was shot like it was 1980 yeah and all this shit had just happened like okay you want to know how everybody dumb- was still really excited about it Do you know how, well 69 is when we landed on the moon so it'd be 11 years Apollo 11 and Stanley Kubrick made this movie 11 years later you want to hear how crazy and stupid conspiracy theory people are okay the famous phrase all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy that's typed infinitely when you type that on a typewriter the L is the same character used for a one because there is no one so a one one on every page, Apollo Eleven, A one one. That's that is legitimately a theory. I, hate I know <laughs> so much. That's but, like uh, if you take breaking down a film. It's basically me. The t- the two weeks after I saw the number twenty three. Every license plate, I figured out a way to break it down to 23. I was taking 23 steps between my bedroom and, like, downstairs. Like, for about two weeks, you get way into numerology. And then one day you wake up and you go, oh, this is just me. It's the power of the human mind making numbers. But You can make anything into anything if yeah, you try hard enough. Yeah. One of my, but this is something that you and I talked about off mic this morning. Because I, I couldn't keep some of these factoids to myself because I think they're so cool. And who knows if this is intentional or not. But somebody pointed out that because we are in a hotel and Danny is told very strongly by Scatman Crothers, uh, by Dick Holleran, don't go into room 237. Don't. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Don't go into 237. Someone figured out that do not disturb those words the first one has two letters the second one has three letters and the last one has seven letters 237 do not disturb 
I thought that was cool. I kind of liked that one. Probably it's incidental. Totally. <laughs> um, yeah. Because there's another story that the the real hotel that they shot the exterior at had in the book it's 217, and the real hotel had a room 217, and they were like, "Hey, uh, Mr. Kubra, could you?" Could you not make it so no one ever stays so in So they just made it a three instead of a one. Yeah, like, that's probably what really happened, and the do not disturb thing is a coincidence, <laughs> but what a cool coincidence, all right? They also probably had a second floor. Well, they definitely had a second floor as well, so they also had a 227, so they just had to... Right. Do you want to... Um, well, if they that's had... That's not how that works. If they had less than 20 rooms on a floor, maybe they only had 17 rooms per floor, you know? That's how they do it. It'd be 117, 217, right, 317. But they must not have had 37 rooms, which is, you know, they could have been 47 or 57, but. Uh, it's just the next number that they didn't have. It is. <laughs> um, what did you think? What did you think of the fact that the, I thought it was New Year's, that it was a New Year's Eve party, but it's not. I thought it was too. It's is the, it in the book? I can't remember. Shit. But it's the 4th of July, which is Independence Day. Which Ooh. I know it's like such an extra creepy little thing. Is that why we get red and blue? Red, white, and blue Independence Day? Maybe because a lot of the a lot of the horror of the hotel does focus <laughs> around the party goers. We see revelers. We see the owner of the the previous owner of the Overlook having sex with a guy in a bear costume, dog costume, bear dog, bear dog, bear pig man, do- pig, pig bear? man, dog. Anyway, guys getting a blowjob, you know, like it's we see a lot of stuff from the party night, including the party itself at one point. Um, oh, are the little girls dressed up for the. Oh, no. No, because the, he they're killed, there after. Yeah, he killed them during in the in 1970, 10 years previous. Um, can we talk about anyway? I thought that the, the 4th of July and the Independence Day was kind of funny, especially because rather than becoming independent, Jack gets sucked into the history of the hotel. At the end of the movie, with the picture, but know? Danny and um, do achieve a measure Wendy. of freedom from the tyranny of the horrible husband yeah. and father. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> all right. Let's talk. Let's talk cinematography for a second. Okay. One of my fa- so I used to write for a website called uh, Nightmare on Film Street Podcast dot com. Or nofspodcast.com. They also have a podcast, Nightmare on Film Street. They're great. I love them. John and Kim, they talk about horror movies once a week. Uh, they have have a successful horror news website, which is amazing. And they're really incredible people. Um, I got to write for them in two short little fits and starts. And then, you know, my real normal life came and reasserted itself. And I had to stop writing for them again. But while You're I was... so generous. While I was there, I did... Um, I did write them a piece on a movie called The House of the Devil, directed by Ty West, which you and I should probably watch for the show because you've seen it with me, right? Mm-hmm. That's a great movie. But in my in my the article that I wrote for them, it was like a, uh, an in-depth analysis of Elliot Rocket's cinematography for that film. I noticed something in this movie that whoever Kubrick's directors, and I'm he worked he did a lot behind the camera. If you watch the documentaries, he's mm-hmm. responsible for the look of this as much as they are. You know, mm-hmm. they worked really closely together. But in House of the Devil, Elliot Rocket uses really long takes and a moving camera. So what you get is a small person moving around a very large space. And Elliot Rocket moves the camera so that you can... And another thing that he does, which I think is genius, is he lets people 
Elliot Rocket I'm talking about at this point walk off screen Mm -hmm. and he'll hold on the living room or he'll hold someone will sit down in a chair and he'll frame the chair center and then they get up and walk out of the room and like even turn the light off and Mm -hmm. the camera will stay on the chair and I think this is a really effective filmmaking tool because what it does is it shows you the space the area and it reminds you that these rooms don't go away when people leave them. They're still there. It's a it's a tool to create to create a living world outside of whatever we're seeing on the screen at the moment, you know? And I think that this movie does that really well in a different way by using really long dolly shots. There's mm-hmm. two in particular that I'm thinking of, and we both remarked on them when we were watching it. It's those side scroller dolly shots where they're just where Almond's giving them the tour, mm-hmm. and they walk through the Colorado room, and the camera dollies along with them, dollies along with them, dollies along with them, dollies into the hallway, mm-hmm. and they walk into the hallway and they turn and they walk toward us. So just like with Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I know you were either on that episode or heard that episode, we talk about shooting in three dimensional space. Yeah. Now we're shooting them coming towards us. Now we're shooting three-dimensional space and we start to dolly backwards. And we're dollying and dollying and we're just... and you It's really well choreographed. Very yeah. much so. It's slickly shot, which is not surprising given that he has a reputation for shooting stuff that looks amazing. Even if it's slow and boring sometimes, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, it looks fucking great. Um, Beyond the Black Rainbow, occasionally slow, but always visually arresting. So... What I think he's accomplishing by doing this is he's showing us the hotel. The people are so small, you know, like they're way in the background. Mm -hmm. The people aren't really the character. The people aren't really the subject. What we're seeing is this unspoken other character, the Overlook Hotel. You know what I mean? You're a flea on the back of a beast. Yes. Well, they are. Mm -hmm. We're watching fleas in the fur of this ancient giant malignant thing i just on an indian native american burial burial ground ground. (laughs) oh they call it an indian burial ground i think they do too um but this might actually be a moment to talk about the second conspiracy theory that this film is actually a a commentary and allegory for the holocaust what yeah there's dude there's people tied a lot of tied a lot of of their pet things to this he an anti-semite or something no 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 they're saying they're saying that he's like writing about and critiquing the holocaust and saying like that it's bad or something i didn't dig too much into this one because the evidence is even thinner but they start with like here's the overlook hotel it's buried on an indian burial ground which was a genocide you know what i mean yeah so that's people grabbed that and said like oh they they openly say that uh, this is a this was a Native American burial ground. We built a hotel on it, and the early people who built the hotel even had to kill some more Native Americans. The the dude oh, says did they that. Say that. Yeah, he's like the early. Oh. oh, they had to fend off more than a few Indian attacks. Anyway, it's like one of the lines that when they're walking around on the grounds. Oh. So like people, and I again, I didn't do much research into this. I just know that it is one of the the three big conspiracy theories that's tied to it. But the every. Ev- there's the Apollo moon landing one. Okay. There's the Holocaust one. Okay. And then there's like, uh, it's supposed to be like some early Illuminati stuff because basically all of Kubrick's films, people claimed that, yeah, because Eyes, Eyes Wide Shut is supposedly like him revealing the Illuminati and that's why he was murdered and couldn't finish the movie. You know, like 
people retroactively are and they're do, they're doing the thing we were talking about where you can make your brain see yeah. anything, you know? I Okay, so let's just talk about this weird trope for a second. Yeah. Whenever anybody says um it's on an ancient Indian burial ground, I always thought it was like how we have cemeteries. But it was just the Native American version, yeah, not like a mass grave from a slaughter or something. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. You are correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the when you tied it to the Holocaust, I was just like, hold on. Oh, I didn't what? tie it to the Holocaust. The I mean, internet. <laughs> the internet tied this to the oh, Holocaust. Oh, great! We get to thank the internet for one more thing. Uh, we get to damn the internet for one more thing. Um, so. I just, I, I'm sorry, I just got to a note. Uh, there is another thing. There's another thing. W- wait, while we're talking about cinematography, before we get off of it, I'm sorry I brought up the Holocaust. <laughs> I didn't, again, this is not me. This is not my fault. <laughs> some. There's the t shirt. <laughs> some. I'm sorry I brought up the Holocaust again. <laughs> no, but like, this is, I'm sorry, some sweaty guy with Cheetos under his fingernails brought this up and I'm forced to reckon with it because I'm talking about a brilliant movie that it unfortunately somehow got tacked onto. But I want to talk about the cinematography because I did also notice something else. Every dolly shot with adults, they're walking towards the camera and the camera's moving backwards. Mm -hmm. The camera is ahead of the grown-ups looking back as they approach. Oh, and the ones with Danny are following him. Every Because he has foresight. Yes, I yeah, I wasn't sure how to unpack that. So that's why I wanted to bring this up to you, because one of the things that I think is interesting is when Almond's around and we're doing the dolly shot, because we do actually see one. Uh, No, no. Yeah. Danny is the only one who is ahead of the camera. When we're doing dolly shots. Are you what thinking about the hedge about, maze in the yeah, end? Yeah, I was. No, the only, that camera, we're either looking at Jack Nicholson's face or we are in his eyeballs. We are in POV. We're never behind mm. him, I don't think. I'll have to watch it again. A dozen more times um, to figure out what this whole Holocaust thing is about. <laughs> yeah, I I also kind of thought about it like um, when we were watching Danny on the tricycle. Which is a, one of the most iconic shots I love it. of all time. Um. I also thought of it like it's stalking him and he's aware of it. Yeah. Like he's trying to outrun it. But the adults aren't aware. From a from a so Kubrick got when this first came out, like I said, uh, the critics didn't like it. Kubrick got taken to task and a lot of people said, you don't know how to make a horror movie. This is not a horror movie. You're bad at making horror. I disagree. I think that this this dolly shot, this uh, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe a follow shot or a tracking shot, but um, the, the like the the follow along behind is it one the one where they go into the gold room because that's one of my favorite film things. Which Danny on <laughs> where, the tricycle? No, where somebody goes into a room, yeah, and you see them like you are the wall or you follow them through the wall that's one of my favorite things i don't know why oh yeah we love it so much we do that a couple times but i'm talking about with danny and one of the things i think is interesting with danny is one of the one of the easy things to remember with horror is children and neil gaiman taught me this in some i think it was a blog post children in peril are always frightening it's you're yeah. you're always scared. When I would it, never argue that this was not a horror. Film. Oh yeah, totally, totally. But I think that people, I think that 
Oh my god. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Max Peterson's smarmy statement of the morning. Are you, are you do you have boxing gloves on right now? I think that people No, I don't think oh, you'll disagree okay. with me. I'm fighting with people in the 80s, I think. But I don't think I think that a lot of people in the 80s missed the sophistication of Stanley Kubrick's directorial style. Sure. Steven Spielberg, I read an interview with him this morning where he talks about The Shining. <laughs> and I think he was on to something. I think Kubrick is directing the wheels off this thing. He's making brilliant counterintuitive choices that create that feeling of tension Mm -hmm. that carries through the whole film. So Gene, brilliantly, I think the choice to have the camera follow Danny is Danny goes around the corner first. We don't know what he sees until a second after he rounds the corner. And when he finally sees the girls, that works in our favor because we come around the corner and he is stopped. We are also kind of following him like a parent, too. And that feeling of losing sight of your child. And you're like, oh, you get that little flutter for a second. One of my favorite shots in this whole movie. Not that I have a child or, you know. But if Trinity runs out of sight when we're on a walk, you know. But like um, what I was I've watched children. I know. (laughs) I know. I'm so sorry you had to do that. Um, (laughs) But like one of my favorite shots is we're following Danny and we're way, 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 way behind him. He's way down at the end of the hall. Mm-hmm. And we're fought, we're coming, but we're not anywhere near him. And he zoop, turns the corner, and we don't cut. The camera stays in the hall as we, like, dawdle after him. And you're like, you have no idea because Danny just vanishes. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. This place is like a maze. The, mm-hmm. the house is like a mm-hmm. maze. Or the, the hotel mm-hmm. is like a maze. Mm-hmm. But he goes around that corner, and we don't know what he sees or what he's encountered, and we're not given any clues. And all of a sudden, for no reason that we can put our finger on, because it's just a kid rolling around on a tricycle, suddenly you are very anxious. Mm-hmm. This is one of those. That's one of those things, you know. Like, and there's there's also something about the steady sound of him, like really, and he's pedaling hard. Mm-hmm. The kid's not like, yeah. he's like, like he's on a mission. I, when he's going over the rugs. Yeah. That also makes you like, it gets you, it gets you amped up. And then every time he turns a corner and disappears for a second, you're like, okay, there he is. Oh, there he is. And you don't know why. And I think that that's Kubrick's making really clever directorial choices. Now I can't take credit for this. Do you think people, oh, I'm sorry. I can't take, well, no, go ahead. Do you think people argued that this wasn't a horror film because it wasn't a stabby, stabby Lots of blood, kind of slashery type. To put this did in context, just, did it break the mold of whatever? Friday was the Thirteenth came out three months before this. Okay. Halloween came out two years before this. Like, at the time that The Shining came out, we were entering the golden age of '80s slasher films. You know what I mean? Um, but what I was gonna there was another scene in here that I was gonna talk about that. Again, I wish I could take credit for seeing this, but Steven Spielberg noticed it. So I will tip my hat to Steven Spielberg. It's fine. <laughs> um, his his favorite moment in here is when Wendy finds the manuscript. All work and no oh. play makes Jack a dull boy. Because watching the movie, what you expect is she's going to be looking at the manuscript, looking at the manuscript. We cut to the reverse and Jack is right over her shoulder. That's how you shoot that, Right. Like if if I were to, if you'd never seen The Shining and I were to mm-hmm. give you that, we don't know where Jack is. Wendy finds something she's not supposed to be seeing, mm-hmm. and absorbed by the content of the pages, she doesn't notice that Jack is behind her. Right. You know, like that's how you shoot that. Kubrick 
Spielberg lays it out beautifully. Kubrick subverts the shock. Mm -hmm. When we do cut, it's to a point 50, 60 feet behind Wendy that slowly approaches her and gives us plenty of time to know here comes Jack. Jack Mm -hmm. is approaching. Wendy sees him well before he reaches her, which means, according to Spielberg, after any shock, there will necessarily be a feeling of relief. So if, oh God, it's Jack, and then Mm -hmm. Jack starts talking, you've hit a high point of adrenaline, and now Jack is talking, and you feel a wave of relief. By subverting, oh, a, there, we can we can work this out. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. Or, or like, you don't sustain that high because mm-hmm. if you get a shock of adrenaline, unless the next thing is somehow more shocking, mm-hmm. just by physiologically, it's you're, just keeping you more tense than you would be otherwise. Yeah, by, by s- kind of like dropping it down slightly. Well, he doesn't drop it down. He just doesn't let us have a peak. So we get mm-hmm. tense when she sees the pages, and then we get tense when Jack. When we see something's approaching mm-hmm. and then we're tense when it's Jack and then we're tense when Jack is acting weird, but we never had a shock. So there was no relief all the way through the scene. And that's a counterintuitive, that's yeah. counterintuitive to the way that you would typically direct a horror scene. He subverted a trope and made the scene infinitely more frightening. Right. Don't we have a whole section for jump scares in our we criteria? Do. We do. And he yeah. bailed out of the, well, we actually folded them it's together. tension slash jump tension scares. Tension slash yeah. jump scares because I think we recognize that both are effective tools in horror. Yes. And I think what makes this movie stand out and movies like The Haunting and movies like The Exorcist, these, these titanic horror films that you and I, because fuck the world, you and I have been talking about forever because we're both horror fans and I'm like a hardcore film nerd and you're an art nerd. The movies that we keep coming back to are not jump scare movies. They are movies that make you feel tense the whole time. Hereditary, well, Hereditary's got some crazy scares near mm-hmm. the end, but Hereditary is a slow burn. Uh, the, the Exorcist doesn't even show up in The Exorcist until over an hour into the movie. The rest is just hospital drama. Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Shining. Same thing. You know, like tension, tension. Um, Steven Spielberg. We do like to watch stuff with jump scares in it. We do. But it's a, like we're not really absorbed in it. We're not completely focused on it. It's like those in a way, popcorn and chat and yeah, hang out kind yeah. of films. In a way, the jump scares do kind of kick you out of the flow. Mm-hmm. But that's not a bad thing. Okay, come on. What movie did we love more than Insidious when we first saw it? Oh my god! And that movie's like nothing but jump scares the whole fucking time. Like the ones that make you like piss. Pee puddle. Oh yeah. my god! Like you have to replace your couch after watching Insidious for the first oh, time. The, the the window. The uh, yeah, the walking in the window outside inside. You're and like, dude, no. The devil behind the dad in broad daylight. You're like, oh! You're just like you're like scream so hard you vomit. It's amazing. <laughs> down i want to watch insidious oh tonight my God. but um okay. and you know can we can we say it really quick because we were gonna do it for an episode but we didn't so bird and i were gonna do the conjuring as one of our episodes and maybe we'll revisit it at some point it's another it's another i think his name is james wan the guy who did insidious but it's uh we watched the conjuring like four nights ago or no about no it was when we were oh yeah you remember i threw my notes away yeah that's okay i didn't take any like I got sucked in so fast, but like, mm-hmm. you want to talk about a movie that creates tension and then hits mm. you in the nuts with jump scares, like oh, yeah. over and over. The Conjuring is really scary. If you haven't seen The Conjuring, except halfway through, I started to just get mad. Is it because of all the Jesusy stuff? No. What was it that Mm-mm. made you mad? 
I don't know. It it, it lost part of its. I know this is totally unrelated. No, it's okay. This is how the show works. I don't. Part of the. I don't know. It it lost steam for me somehow. It and feels ceased like a, to be scary and just made me mad. It. I don't. I don't know what order they came out in. Mm-hmm. I think they came out in the order I think they came out in. In a weird way, the having watched them both now, mm-hmm. the Conjuring feels like a practice run for Insidious because there's mm. similar jump scares, like mm-hmm. when the psychic chick, um, when uh, Mrs. Warren turns around, and actually, wait, holy fuck, it's the same actor because the husband. The guy who plays Mr. Warren plays the dad in Insidious, and we get exactly the same scare, which is when... Is Insidious the one where he um, is... The boy uh, is... uh, Okay, mega spoilers for Insidious if you haven't seen it. I'm going to give you five seconds. Four, three, two, one. It's the haunted house story where the boy is haunted. Oh, why did I think it was the the one with the girl who's pretending that she's possessed? Why was Girl I thinking who's pretending it was, she's possessed? Yeah, she's part of like a weird cult or something, and um, she's telling him like, "I'll give you a what did she call it? Not blow job." But that's how he was like, "Oh, you're full of shit. You're making this all up right now." I don't to, remember like, that movie at all. Oh, I thought that was starring the same guy. Maybe. What do we? Do? I want to oh watch my this God. now. Girl pretending shit. to be possessed. Yeah, she has like a demon baby at the end. A demon baby at the end. I don't know. I don't know. It's, oh, it's very bait and switchy. We're okay. going to look this up. <laughs> but And we're also going to go back to The Shining oh, now, but two no. really great movies. I liked The Conjuring pretty much all the way through, and, I, and Bird and I both are huge fans of Insidious. It's very good. Yeah. All right. I think so, I was just like, I was mad at the characters because I wanted them to be mad. I wanted weren't. them to be like, all right, take back your fucking house. Like... Do whatever exorcism witchcraft. You're talking about the last exorcism. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. it's the last exorcism. Is that the same actor? No, different actor. But they look similar. I yeah yeah they look alike. It's the cornbread mass. I fucking love that movie, dude. Except cornbread mass. Yeah, remember when he's like, these people are so. He's like, these people are so gullible. If you get them whipped up, I could literally go up there and preach anything. Well, not anything. You don't think so? All right, keep your cameras rolling. Right, because he's a fake. Yeah, he's a huckster, an evangelical huckster, and he goes, "When I get back up there, I'm gonna preach. I'm gonna slip in a bit about cornbread, and they won't even notice." So the camera's rolling. He's like, "Do you believe that if you're all gonna be saved, you're gonna be bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ? Can I get an amen?" Everyone's like, "Amen." He goes. Do you believe that an amazing snack could be if you take a little bit of corn flour and mix it with a little bit of water and mix it up real good and put it in an oven at 350 degrees for 45 minutes, you end up with a delicious snack known as corn bread. Can I get an amen? And everyone's like, hallelujah. And they like, he straight up, go. Yeah. And he does it for like a minute. He preaches about cornbread and everyone just like flows with it. It's, that's a really good movie. I'm going to look these up and see who the main actor is. Dude, I'm is. telling you that, that I movie. I swear it's the same guy. That movie would have been perfect if you would have not had the last 10 minutes. The last exorcism oh, was fucking awesome, the and then the last ten minutes is just the most shit. bullshit. You, I think we, I think we went out and killed a drifter because we were so mad. Like the end of that movie was so <laughs> shitty. We were just like, we need to destroy something. We beautiful. did not do that. We didn't. Yeah, <laughs> caveat: we did not kill a drifter. <clears throat> no. Um. All right, back to The Shining. Sorry. Uh, I just got to another note, and it was my favorite note because it comes back twice, which allows me to know that I was not crazy. So when Dick Holleran. Yeah, we're doing good. 137. 
When Dick Halloran sits down with Danny and they're talking about The Shining. Yes. In the background, there's a pillar with a magnet with a mm. with knife strips <laughs> on each of the four sides. And all of the knife blades are facing to the right. Remember Jack mm-hmm. Jack Torrance's uh, uh the first bookshelf of his we see where the top the top layer of books all go to the right. I don't know exactly what it means, but I'm telling you what I saw. All the knives go to the right except for the chef's knife, which is the Michael Myers, the traditional knife yeah. that you see. For mm-hmm. those of you who don't know, that's a chef's knife. The chef's knife is backwards, blade to the left. Later on, when Wendy... I think that it's a chef knife is incidental. I think it was just meant to be a knife was I backwards. I don't think it was oh, that specific. No, no, no. I don't think that the chef's knife was important. I think the mm-hmm. okay. I think the reason that Kubrick picked the chef's knife, it is, it is the most distinct knife blade yes, shape. Yeah. So like if you look at our knives, they all kind of look similar, but the chef's knife is a very distinct. It stands out. It's it recognizable. Has a look. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm not saying that I think the chef's knife was the, the choice on purpose. Right. I'm just saying so that people who watch the movie. Because Wendy doesn't grab a chef's knife later on. No, she grabs a. Like uh, a butchering knife Yeah, or a carving knife. It's a yeah. carving knife. But um, I, I was just, when people watch it, they'll know which knife to look for. The chef's uh-huh. knife is yeah. backwards. Then later when Wendy locks Jack in dry storage, we have a shot from inside dry storage out past Wendy to that same knife rack and the chef's knife is gone there's an empty space where it was and then she grabs the carving knife which was the knife to the left but like again watching for the show that's another sliver in your brain you know just those little things yeah and I feel like if we went and watched it again and specifically just looked at stuff in the background we'd find so much more well I mean the, the number of things that we can't really even talk about because we don't we notice them on a conscious level well no because you yeah maybe how much of that is there but like you and i haven't um we haven't watched this movie a dozen times yet mm-hmm. in a row you know to pick out all the shit but like some of the stuff we noticed is at the beginning of the movie wendy's wearing a red like a red jumper jumpsuit onesie thing under blue or like a blue dress red i thought it was blue on top it is it's blue. She's wearing a long sleeved red shirt under a blue dress, and she's got like red pants on too. It looks like a like a. It's like a house coat or something. Yeah, it's but like it, but it's red apron. under yeah. blue, and we see Danny is also wearing red and blue. Mm-hmm. Jack is not. Jack's wearing like like he has a blue shirt on, but I feel like he has like a brown jacket and yeah. a green tie. But it's but it's his color motif is brown and green because this is something we notice is over the course of the movie as Jack becomes more unhinged and Wendy actually becomes the quote unquote head of the family taking care of the boiler. We mm-hmm. we might we noticed it when Wendy's running the boiler. She's yes, doing yeah. Jack's job. She's wearing green and brown. She's dressed in his colors and he is dressed in hers. He's got red and a blue mm-hmm. sweater on top. Danny wears both of their colors. Um, but primarily red and blue. Yeah, almost exclusively. Um, uh, uh, somebody pointed out, somebody online pointed out the introduction of yellow, the yellow bug. The uh, the drink that gets spilled on Jack is, is yellow. called Advocat. It's yellow. Um, mm-hmm. As he gets further and further into madness, he wears more yellow. More yellow is brought into the color palette. But really the the big one is red and blue. Red and blue are all through this movie. When we're in the Colorado room and we're shooting up at the ceiling, there's those mm-hmm. Native American designs. Yeah. And they're like the triangles. And the triangles are either red with a blue border or blue with yeah. a red border. And then there's one that's like green, which is the other color, yeah. which is Jack's color. Like the 
they dress in coordination with the hotel and with Kubrick. I'm saying that's not a designer being like, these are complimentary. This is Kubrick telling us something. Oh, yeah, for sure. Or at least like. I'm not sure what they mean, though. But. But. I know they mean something. But you know what they are. You know, that's exactly right. They mean something. And our our top. What does it mean? Our top bookshelf can't get it. But those under bookshelves are getting stuck full of Kubrick's little Uh, pins, man. uh And that's why this. Like one of my favorite moments of this watching because I was thinking about the sound design and there's that great moment where Jack is not writing by the way that's that's all the script said do you want me to or are you stretching out or do you have to take a break because yeah, I just have to stand up okay my butt's numb so you remember the scene um do you remember the scene where Jack is throwing the tennis ball yeah against the wall mm-hmm. sound design's amazing because you get that big booming echo oh, yeah. boom boom he's throwing it fucking boom. hard dude like Nicholson is hurling that he he looks like he's gonna throw his shoulder out he's throwing it so hard and it's frenzied and that that's weird you know what i mean like that's one of those like you're in this hotel like you should not be throwing a ball at the wall in there that's one of those horror moments where you're like why is this so upsetting it's it's because of how amped up he is even though it's an empty room we get amped up too the script just said jack is not writing so Nicholson came up with that. He improvised the "Here's Johnny" line, mm-hmm. and he improvised part of his argument with Wendy when she first comes in. And he's like, "When you hear me typing, oh my god, the line, uh, if you hear me, if you hear me typing, if you hear me not typing, when I'm in here, I'm writing." That's improvised, and he took it from an argument that he had with an ex-girlfriend because Jack Nicholson is what used to be a screenwriter. He was a writer. So he was like to get that scene right He went to the argument of like I need you to get the fuck out Because I have a deadline in a couple days And it kind of messed with him emotionally apparently To like go to that place But um he, You know what he's throwing the ball against? Native American artwork Artwork? Yeah Like that keeps popping up Um, And also I thought that that was a brilliant metaphor For what writer's block feels like You take a ball And you hurl it And then it slams into something and flies back at you. And then you take the ball and you're like, this time, man, I got mustard on this one. And you chuck it and it slams into the wall and bounces right back to you. It's like a perfect visual for what writer's block must feel like, which is what he's going through. Um, That is, what do you you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about uh, when Danny comes and tries to go get his fire truck and Jack Nicholson tells him, I would never hurt you, Danny. Because I think that's a... Yeah, because we disagree about what's happening here. We do. and I, but Can we agree either way that this is a high point for Jack Nicholson's performance oh, as yeah. Jack Torrance? Oh, okay, yeah, so definitely. however we read it, he's amazing. Yeah. Okay, okay. So what is... Because we disagreed about this kind of vociferously on the couch while we were watching mm-hmm. the movie. Let's talk about it. Okay. How do you read this moment? I read this moment as a moment of clarity. Okay. Like uh, so you, he is him, his maybe his best self, which is not great, but maybe his best. So you don't believe that he's in the thrall of the hotel here? No, I feel like this is a lucid moment where okay. he has snapped out for a second. He's like, "What the fuck is going on? What have I been doing to myself and my family? And what am I doing here? Yeah, like things are very wrong." And um, I. Th- I feel like that moment with Danny is actually very tender because you don't see him interact with Danny in this way previous at all. He doesn't like hold him. He's not gentle with him. He doesn't Um, touch him. 
He doesn't touch him ever. Yeah. He doesn't even look at him. Maybe because he once dislocated his shoulder, which I always liked that read, which he's not physically affectionate because he once accidentally hurt this kid pretty bad. But okay, so he's he's gentle with Danny, picks him up. So you think this is? Do you have he's more? He's kind of petting him, like, I, no, that's that's just how I read it. Okay, so the way that I've always read, that for me, this is one of the scariest scenes in the movie because I think it's the, I think it's one of the moments where Jack Torrance finally, fully loses his grip. He, he I think this is him finally his one of the first little slips into being fully in the thrall of the hotel. Because I don't because I don't think it's played warm. Danny comes in I don't the, think that he's capable of being warm and loving. I would okay, I would argue that not only is it not played warm, it's played as the most the single most chilling second the second most chilling Jack Torrance moment in the whole movie. Because it feels, because it shouldn't feel this way, but it feels like a child in grave peril. But it's his dad. It mm-hmm. shouldn't feel scary. It's That's why in fairy tales, the evil stepmother is so scary. It's a mother figure that isn't acting like a mother. This is a father not acting like a father. Danny comes in, and Jack Torrance, we found out that, okay, Jack Torrance is sleeping. Jack, your dad's sleeping. He's been sleeping. He only got to bed a couple hours ago. And Danny sneaks into the room and he looks around that corner and he, and Jack is sitting on the edge of the bed staring dead-eyed out at the the win, winter. Mm-hmm. And Danny's like, okay, okay. I'm going to... Because Danny tries to back out of the room. He like mm-hmm. makes a little step and that's when Jack's head turns like a predator noticing prey. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's the same. It's actually a <laughs> shot that's mirrored later when Wendy is holding Danny after Danny's been strangled by the woman mm-hmm. in 237. We cut to that wide looking past past Jack at Wendy and Wendy's head slowly turns. That's a mirror image of shooting past Danny when Jack's head slowly turns. And it's that same awful moment of this person shouldn't be so threatening. Why are they? Why mm-hmm. do I feel threatened? And he goes, "I'm just, I'm just gonna get my fire truck, Dad." Scared out of his fucking mind. And Jack because Torrance, his dad's abusive. Yeah, well, yeah, but like, his dad's his dad's an alcoholic. That's dis- my read. His dad's an alcoholic who dislocated his shoulder once three years ago. But yes, his dad's abusive. But his dad has also been clearly losing his mind since they got to the hotel. You know, like. It's he raises his hand and he's like, Come here, come here, Danny. Come here for a second, Danny. It's not like, <clears throat> Come here for a second, Danny. Uh, sorry, things have been weird. I'm, you know, just been getting a little frustrated with work. How are you and your mom? That's not the Jack Nicholson performance. The performance yeah. is like, You know, I'd never hurt you, Danny. Your mom didn't say I'd ever. Did your mom tell you that? It's this ominous, eerie madman. That's how I read it. When he picks Danny up onto his leg, you can see Danny's flesh crawling. And I don't think this is just because, like, Dad pulled my arm <laughs> out of socket once. Something's wrong with this man. This is wrong. This is like a, in a Miyazaki movie where somebody ate something that's black and slimy and now they're not themselves. <laughs> that's Jack Torrance right here. Like, shit, something. It's the hotel. But, like, he's like, right. I'm looking in my dad's eyes and there's something in. Actually, Danny doesn't look in his father's face at all. Right, he just sits there as still as possible, and he looks trying down not at the to bedspread. attract attention. Yeah, right. But I don't read this <laughs> as like a straight family drama. This dad used to be abusive. I read this as like 
this is if Mike Myers picked Lori Strode up off the floor and put her on his knee and was like, you know, Lori, I'd never hurt you. It feels that wrong to me. It's like, oh, oh my, the whole time my muscles are just locked up. And either either way you read it, Nicholson's face, when he like, he does this thing near the end where he goes, I love you, Danny. I love you more than anything. When he says that, I wish we could stay here forever and ever and ever. When he says that line, he's doing this thing with his mouth that's like, I'm smiling at a child to make the child feel good. But this is that. This is that like sociopath. I'm saying things that I don't actually feel. Thing. Right. I. I guess the difference in our read, you and me, is you read this as being fully in the real world with no supernatural elements whatsoever, and I read this as Jack being fully outside of the real world, fully enthralled by the supernatural elements of the hotel. He's he's fully the hotel right here for me. For me, he's just snapped out of the hotel for this moment. Do you think that his performance makes him look like a normal person? No. I think it's... I don't quote unquote normal for Jack Torrance. I think it's Jack Torrance trying to be normal dad. Maybe. Overcoming his whatever's happening with the hotel and his being an abusive father. But we've seen who's an alcoholic. We've seen abusive alcoholic Jack Torrance in the car when he's talking about cannibalism, which is a great little moment in the early part of this film because he's pissed off until he talks about cannibalism and then he starts to smile. And it's it says, see, it's fine. He saw it on the television. He saw it on the television. I don't know. That, if if he had acted that way, because remember, this is another thing we mentioned off mic, but not on the, on the episode. Stanley Kubrick shot this movie in script order, which, for those of you who have never made a film, is absolutely... It's not how you do it. No, that's insane. What, that's not how any movie should ever be shot. Typically what you do is you shoot all of the scenes that take place in one location first because then you only ever need one location at a time. It keeps your cost and your time down because if, if, if you shoot all the scenes in the Colorado room all at once, then you're done with every scene in the Colorado room and then you go to the bedroom and you shoot all the bedroom scenes. You don't have to keep setting the cameras up. Kubrick shot well over a series of days or months or whatever however long it takes to sh- you don't shoot it in one day no well I mean you can though like um, I shot all of the basement scenes of Marlin in one day and that's 30 minutes of the movie so like anyway but yeah so it saves you time because you don't have to keep setting everything up and taking it down what Kubrick did is he took over an entire lot of sound stages in England and he built every set piece all at once kept them all lit and all ready to shoot at all times so that he could shoot this movie in order that's i just love him so much for that (laughs) i think about how that how good that would be as an actor because you get to you get to linear going to go through your emotional performance in a linear fashion that's awesome the part of me that is a control freak just loves this mm-hmm. because you know that that means that he went through the sets with the set designers and with the prop people and fine-tuned every single thing down to his perfect vision especially when we look at the details like the books and the carpet and the tie and the the specific lighting another fun detail so when you're lighting a set oftentimes you have to get the lights right for the height and size of your actors right 
you light to a single person. That's part of like shooting a film. So usually what you do is you get a stand-in because it's boring because you have to stand as they do. Anyone who's ever gone through tech week, all right, and hold, and then you stand still for 20 minutes while they adjust lights to your height and your size. Typically, you get someone about the same size as Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Uh, Stanley Kubrick used only the actors themselves because he's like, other people are not exactly the right size. Mm -hmm. My actors are, which meant that all of his actors had to show up to set three hours before shooting started every day. Yeah, his level of control and precision just... There isn't... I know. It's true. Like, he could... He was hellish to work with because he's a control freak, but it pays off. Because, it really does. Because it the comes end, through. It, at the end of the day, you turn it on and you're like, I am watching a Stanley Kubrick film. You know that it's his pure vision. Yeah, 100%. too. It's exactly what he wanted to show you. That's my biggest problem with Eyes Wide Shut is he didn't cut that thing. Mm-hmm. He, Other people looked through his footage and they did their best, but they were not him. Right. That's why I don't consider that part of his canon. It's so shitty compared to his other stuff. It doesn't feel like a Kubrick movie. Mm -hmm. Um, There's another director who did this, Akira Kurosawa. My dad told me this detail about him, which I thought was amazing. So there's a famous sequence in one of Akira Kurosawa's movies that took place in a (laughs) hospital, right? He went, it's like a 10-minute scene. He went and found an abandoned hospital. He totally refurbished every floor of the hospital. So every floor was functional. The ER unit's on the bottom, and Mm -hmm. there's beds in the ward, and... Every single drawer in the entire building had in it what it would have in it. Tongue depressors, cotton swabs, blah, 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 syringes. The cabinets all had what would really be in the cabinets. There were surgical suites. The actual scene took place in like two rooms of this entire building that he completely brought back up to snuff as a hospital. Even though none of the cupboards were ever opened, if an actor had opened the cupboard, the stuff would have been in there. This is the film director version of a writer knowing every character's backstory and their all of their like favorite colors and who their best friend is and their best friend's backstory and this location, every single detail of this location. I it's uh, uh <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I I love it too. Um all right. So the next thing that we have to talk about is when Jack because there is a point in this movie where Jack starts to see shit that is clearly not there. When Jack starts to talk to his ghost. Yeah. So we're about to meet Lloyd the bartender in part two of this episode. To make it easy on myself for editing, I'm going to cut this one so that I don't have to like go in and shuffle shit around. So thank you so much for uh, for listening. Guys, we're back. Welcome back to Measuring Flicks. It's a long one, but you know, I didn't pick The Shining. So... <laughs> It was always Don't hate me. No, it was always gonna be a long one. And it feels good, Boo. It feels so good to be sitting good. here talking well, movies good. with you. Um and it feel I'm hoping that Carl listening to this right now is is loving this as much as I'm loving being back on this mic. And just know that while I do love you immensely and love podcasting with you and love watching movies with you. I do miss my movie watching friend and thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I'm a poor substitute. You're not. You've brought up like an amazing number of things in here. I always love that. That's why we like having you as like the, the, the third man in an episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You, you are me and Carl's third. Um, but that's why we like having you on is because you've got the, uh, well, we love having Danielle on too, man. We just turned it into a little FZK orgy over here. We just, it's always a party. 
But we like having other perspectives. And one of the ones that you always bring is this artistic eye that a lot of us miss. I'm good with cinematography and filmmaking. Carl hits like deep, broad spectrum tropes and he's amazing at spotting, at performance. He can mm-hmm. dissect a performance like no one else. We're all like anime characters. Oh my God, we have our specialties. We all have our specialties. Yay! And you come in and you tell us about like artistic motifs. And this is, ah, oh, did you know? That this was taken from Art Nouveau. And then Danielle comes in and she's like, I haven't seen a lot of movies, but I'll tell you what. And then she drops like nuggets of wisdom on us. She's like the... uh, She's the main character secretly. She's the like sweet, loving main character. And we're supporting cast. Oh, because she's the jack of all trades and we all have our specialties. She's the Naruto to our... (laughs) Yep. She's the, you know how there's that character in anime who is the the girl who's not like, she's like, she's got a great heart. She's the, um. Megumi-san? From, yes. Uh, from, um. Food Wars. Food Wars. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Shokugeki no Soma. Yeah, well. Guys, just, you gotta watch oh it. Food Wars is amazing. It's on Crunchyroll for free all three seasons. Go watch Food Wars. It's like <laughs> Harry Potter set at a culinary school. It's and it's anime. So anyway, but we got to get out of here before I have to edit. Yes. So we will be back. Uh, You probably won't even miss. You can just roll right into the next episode uh, in part two of me and Bird discussing The Shining. Talk to y'all soon.